Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the Andrews on staff referenced in the Seinfeld video. Um, it's good to meet you. I'm glad you're here. And uh, I wanted to start off with a question this morning, uh, because as I've been looking at this passage and preparing for this message, it was the question that came up to me over and over again, and it was this. If I were to ask you, what, is, what do you think is the greatest obstacle to true faith, the greatest obstacle to faith, what would you say? The greatest obstacle to faith in life, what is it? As I thought about that this week, I, some words came to mind, maybe they did for you too. I thought of doubt, I thought of skepticism, cynicism maybe, or, uh, or even pleasure-seeking, or partying, or struggling with addiction, or uh, kind of on the other side, uh, overworking, busyness, or complacency, things like that. And these are all pot- uh, potential barriers to faith, but the more I looked at this text today, I had to come to a different conclusion, because what if I told you that perhaps the greatest obstacle to faith wasn't outright idolatry, wasn't hedonism, wasn't, ple- wasn't seeking worldly pleasure? What if the greatest obstacle to faith isn't the immoral life? What if it's the moral one? The moral one. I think perhaps what blinds us more than anything else to true gospel faith is Religion religiosity. There are lots of ways to avoid an encounter with Jesus. We've named several of them already, but the most subtle way to do it, and I think this, this has got to be scary for us a little bit, the most subtle way to do it is to attend Jesus' church and follow his rules and have absolutely no idea who he is or what he cares about. Religion, in that sense, can be as deadly as any blatant lifestyle of outright rebellion. Now, Some of you may be thinking, because you don't know me very well, Andrew, you're a pastor. You're the most religious person in the room. Why are you saying this? And maybe, maybe that's you too. People would say, you're the most religious person in the room. And that should scare us a little bit. Because when you read the Gospels, the people who most ardently opposed to Jesus weren't idolaters. They were religious people. People like me. Their job was to know and study their Bibles. They preached and taught and were responsible for shepherding God's people, and they did not like Jesus. And that scares me, because sometimes the greatest obstacle to Jesus is religion. And churches are full of religious people, and we must truly consider this this morning. They're full of religious people, moral people, good people, upstanding citizens who do not know Jesus Christ. They've never met him. And it's also full of people who have met Jesus, but they've forgotten somewhere along the way, perhaps in very subtle ways, what true gospel religion is and what this faith thing is all about. And we spent the last two weeks on Jesus' encounters with all kinds of different people. The skeptic was the first week, and the satisfied was last week, and later we'll look at, at others when Jesus listens to the outcast and the relativist and other people who come and speak with him. But as you read those stories you'll find that Jesus approaches the religious person very differently from those people. Nicodemus, the guy we just read about in John chapter 3, he's religious. And when he comes to Jesus, there's an urgency to this conversation. Jesus is terse. There's a tension here, unlike any other conversation. Jesus pushes back harder on Nicodemus than I think anyone else in the book of John because sometimes the greatest obstacle to Jesus is religion. Now, why is that? How does that happen? Well, John, through the story of Nicodemus, he, he, he teaches us how. He teaches us why. So if you haven't turned there yet, turn now to John chapter 3. 
Starting in verse 1, I'll read a few verses to, to orient us again. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now stop there for a second. So the context here of the story, Jesus' public ministry has just launched and his star is rising in Israel. He's very popular and he he heals and he teaches people in such a way that was just unheard of at the time. People are flocking to him. But at the same time, He's becoming more and more of a, of a controversial figure. In, in chapter 2, we didn't read this story. Uh, he goes into the temple and he, he almost starts a riot at the temple. He's turning over tables, uh, announcing judgment on the religious establishment of the day. And so the religious leaders really aren't big fans right now. And so here comes Nicodemus in the middle of the night to speak with Jesus. And uh, it's hard to put Nicodemus' character in context today. So I'll speak as a, as a pastor today. If, uh, we plant a lot of churches here. So if, if, if I were a church planter and Nicodemus wanted to have coffee with me, I would be thinking this guy is a church planter's dream. If I were Jesus, this is the guy, this is the recruit I would want to make. Because I'd be thinking, sure, we've got lots of tax collectors and fishermen and they'll fill some seats, but this guy, this guy's a pro. He's a pro. This guy could preach while I'm on vacation, right? Which is always a pastor's number one goal. This guy could do it. This guy... (laughs) Tom's preaching somewhere else, I promise. Um, Right, this guy could be my number two right out of the gate. He's influential too. He's got friends in high places. We could get this thing going here. See, this is the guy. Nicodemus had an incredible pedigree. John gives a little bit of it here. He's a trained Pharisee which is an elite religious sect of Judaism of the day, very popular with everyone. He knows his Bible backwards and forwards. He's a trained theologian. He's also an experienced leader. He's a leader of the, the member of the ruling council of the Jews. Nicodemus is everything you and I think God wants in a follower. That's who he is. Imagine uh, the, 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 the nicest person in the world. That's this guy. He prayed more regularly than we do. He read his Bible more than we do. He gave alms to the poor more than we do. He fasted regularly. He believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. He believed in the resurrection at the end of time. He believed in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's orthodox in his beliefs to the core. He's an admirable person. He's disciplined. He's moral, probably very hardworking. That's who Nicodemus is. You want to be his neighbor if you're a first century Jew. You look at him and you say, I want you to... I want my kids to grow up and be him. If you're, you want to listen to him teach and preach, if anybody has an in with Jesus, it's this guy. And he comes to Jesus to talk, and he begins this conversation about as politely as he possibly could. He says, teacher, I know you are something special. The things you do, only God's power could do them. And the way the story reads, right after that sentence, it's, 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 it's like Jesus interrupts Nicodemus right in the middle of his thought. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the only equivalent I can think of for that awkwardness of what just happened is if you came up to a preacher after a service and you, you said something like, hey, that was really good and helpful for me. And the preacher said, wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. You have no idea what you're talking about. Stop it. Be like, well, you're welcome. Thanks for, thanks for that. Um, 
And it's hard to know exactly what Nicodemus is thinking in that moment that, that Jesus kind of shuts him down. But I, ha- I have to imagine it was something like, don't you know who I am? What I could do for this ragtag group of guys that you pulled together? If you just convince me who you are, that's why I'm here. I want to learn more. My friends aren't here, but I'm, doesn't that count for something? I showed up. I don't know if Nicodemus thought he had any advantage at all with Jesus, given his training, his morality, his ethics, his integrity. But if he did, Jesus makes it abundantly clear right from the start that all those things, his education, his orthodoxy, his good works, his pedigree, his social circles, his reputation, his gifts, his charisma, they mean absolutely nothing when he starts this conversation with Jesus. Nothing. And if Nicodemus... What he hears, you must be born again. If Nicodemus must be born again, then we must be born again. Nicodemus struggles to believe that when he hears it, and so do we, I think. And the first thing we learn about the danger of the religious person is right here in this text. Religious people think they have an advantage with Jesus, but they do not. They often think they have an advantage with Jesus, but they do not. There is a way to live your life with all the integrity and the morality and the obedience in the world, but you could still be just as far from God as the most hardened criminal, as the most immoral people imaginable. And the Bible proves this point over and over again. There's a famous story in the Bible. It's uh, called the parable of the prodigal son. It's usually how it's, how it's described. Oops. Uh, even if you're not from, very familiar with Scripture, you're probably familiar with that story. A father has two sons. And each son really represents a different way of approaching God, the Father. And most people focus on the younger son. His approach is right, outright rebellion. He does almost nothing to do with his father. He runs away and uh, squanders his money on, uh, in, in a far-off country. But the older son is another way of rejecting God in the story. Through legalism and following all the rules so that his father owes him something. And only one of these sons at the end of the story ends completely estranged from his father. And I'll give you a hint, it's not the one you think. There's a way to follow all the rules, but when it's done simply to get an advantage with God that he owes you something so that you have special access to him, privileges from him, it is just as dangerous. It it's perhaps even more dangerous than flat out ignoring God and rejecting him and running away. Our Bible knowledge, our church attendance, our tithing, our service, our sin avoidance, those are all good things, but not one of them changes the way God feels about us. And not one of them gives us an inside track with Jesus because if anyone had an in with Jesus, it was Nicodemus, but Jesus says, you must be born again. And there are really, I think, two ways this can look in our lives today uh, if our approach with God is to get an advantage with him. The first is a little more overt, but it's not uncommon. Uh, you think you're going to heaven because you're a good person. Someone asked you, how do you know you're going? You'd say, I'm a good person. Uh, God will surely look at your life and see all the good things that you did and give you a full access pass after you die. That's what you're banking your hope on. And listen, here's what the story has to say to that attitude. Nicodemus is a better person than you. If I, had to, if I could put money on it, I would. I'm a pastor, so I can't. But if Nicodemus... <laughs> Nicodemus is a better person than you. And Jesus says he will not see the kingdom as it stands right now. Isn't that sobering? Nicodemus is not right with God in this story. He's not. 
How could, he, how could we possibly be right with God if Nicodemus isn't? And if, if it's about moral living, we're, we're way behind. You too must be born again. And there's another way this can look. And this one's a little harder to diagnose. This person would probably agree with everything that's been said so far. Yes, we have no advantage with God based on our moral living. It's all about grace. But when prayers go unanswered, or when difficulty comes, the knee-jerk reaction is, I don't deserve this. (laughs) Haven't I earned something better from you? Haven't I put the time in, God, to avoid things like this? Or when other people make mistakes, whether it's against you or just in general, you just see it, the first thought you have is, well, I would never do that. I'd never do that. And you see, these reactions betray a very subtle danger that if we that even if we profess to come to Jesus as pure sinners in need of grace, we still think that we are better sinners than those people, you see. I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. And so God, you owe me a little bit more than you owe them. And if we approach Jesus that way, Jesus, hey, it's me, it's Andrew, I'm one of the good ones. Listen to me a little carefully, a little more carefully than usual. If we approach him that way, if we do that, he will interrupt you. He will interrupt your prayers. He will interrupt your questions. He will interrupt your worship. And he'll say, you must be born again first. Otherwise, none of this other stuff matters. Your morality, your religion gives you no traction with Jesus. That's the point. But it's not the only danger of the religious approach to Jesus. There's another one that Nicodemus shows us in his story. So look back at his first words to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus, as we said, he's very polite here. I don't think that he's trying to manipulate Jesus. I don't think he's trying to butter him up or anything. I I think he genuinely comes to Jesus for help. I'm sure Nicodemus, despite his very strong character and his spiritual pedigree, he knew he wasn't perfect. He knew he had problems. He had things to work on. He's probably thinking, I could use some spiritual help. I could use a little spiritual top-off, you know, from a guy like Jesus. He seems pretty sharp. I want to hear what he has to say. I need some supplemental help, and, and this guy seems to know what he's talking about. You see, religious people think they are mature, but they are not. They think they're mature, but they are not. They think they are good, but just need improvement. They do not think that they are dead people who need to be made alive. Or as John, as Jesus puts it in in this story, that they are spiritually unborn and they need a rebirth. They don't see themselves that way. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you think you need reformation. That's why you're here. You need some help, but what you really need is transformation. Nicodemus thinks Jesus can make him a better person, but Jesus came to make him a new person. That's the point. And how many of us come to Jesus because we want to be better people? We want to build on what we think is already a pretty good foundation for life. Hey, Jesus, my life is pretty good except for this one thing. Could you help me with that? How many of us come to him and say, Jesus, we know you're a gifted thinker and teacher. Help me grow into a better person. How many of us think Jesus is like a main speaker at a conference that we love to hear from? But he is not someone who came to completely uproot our entire lives and our entire identity and to make us born again. You see, the fundamental question when we approach Jesus cannot be, how do I get better, Jesus? Jesus, how do I get better? It must be, how do I start over? 
How do I start over? How do I get the new birth? Nicodemus is completely baffled by Jesus' response. You must be born again. It doesn't make any sense to him. And again, it's not hard to understand why he's so thrown because being born again is not something that religious people like to hear for at least two reasons. There are probably more, but I've noticed in my own experience, uh, maybe you have too, that the people we think will struggle the most with the new birth, the people we think are morally and socially the farthest away from God are often the ones who are the quickest to accept it, (laughs) the quickest to jump on board, right? The drug addict, the promiscuous person, the outsider, the social outcast, they want the new life. They want the fresh start. They know what it's like to live without God. They're excited. They want to leave their past behind them and move on with Jesus, but religious people don't, and here's why. Because religious people aren't called simply to leave their bad deeds behind them. That's easy, but they're good ones as well. They must repent of their good deeds too. They must look back on their integrity and their righteousness and their reputation without Jesus, and they have to call it rubbish, garbage, worthless. Which is what Paul does in Philippians 3. He says, I count everything as lost that I was before compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And it's like, you mean all that? It's like, Jesus, you mean all that hard work, that following the rules, obeying my parents, getting good grades, keeping my nose clean, did not move my spiritual needle at all? Nope. Nope. You must count them as lost compared to knowing Christ. And that is so hard for religious people, people who have built their identity on their accomplishments. Because anything, anything we build our lives on apart from Jesus, whether it's pleasure or comfort or power or money, right, those are the obvious ones, or whether it's our moral integrity, it's our reputation for being a good person, that will hinder your conversation with Jesus and you have to repent of all of it. But being born again is hard for another reason too. Nicodemus, he'll say this to Jesus because he's confused and he's a little offended, <laughs> but he's closer to the truth than he realizes. He says to Jesus, back to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, a man can't give birth to himself again. And Jesus says back, you're absolutely right. You can't do this. You have no control over what I'm talking about at all. Religion, religious people are are about control. It's about checking the boxes. If I can just do X, Y, and Z, then I know where I stand. I know I'll be okay. If I can just do those things. And Jesus says to the religious person, you must be born again, and this is something only God can do for you. You cannot give birth to yourself. You cannot give birth. If you've ever been in a delivery room, you know that's true. The baby does very little. Dad doesn't do much either, but that's beside the point. You cannot, there's a reason he uses this image, you cannot give birth to yourself. This is also why Jesus uses the metaphor of the wind in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You cannot control God's work by your behavior. The new birth, entrance into the kingdom, salvation is a gift that only God can give. It cannot be earned. 
And the religious people, whether they know it or not, whether they've said it out loud or not, they've built their lives on the premise that God favors, God's favor can be earned. And sometimes it is hard to receive Jesus' words here as good news because of that. It's hard. So we're trying to grow. Sometimes some of us, we're trying to grow before we've been born. We're trying to grow, but we haven't even been born yet. Are we trying to improve before we're made new? And certainly being a follower of Jesus should change the way you act and live. I'm not saying that's not true, but only because you're born again. And sometimes I think we underestimate how radical Jesus' image of the new birth is for the Christian life. This is a radical image. We often, when we think of conversion, when we think of someone coming to Jesus for the first time, we often think the story is basically about a bad person becoming good. It's not. When someone, it's, about, it's about an unborn baby entering a brand new world, a new way of seeing, a new way of doing, a new way of everything. It does not get more radical than that. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a preacher of the last century. He would often, had a very simple question he would use uh, to determine if someone understood this teaching on being born again. And he would ask this person in, in his office, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? And he would often say, their answer told me everything I needed to know about, about where they stood. How would you answer that question? How do you know you're a believer? How do you know you're saved? And Lloyd-Jones would say, if, if the person said, well, I'm trying my hardest, I'm working at this, and I'm getting better at it, he would say, that's a religious response to the question. Because the, Jesus, the, the, the Christian can say, I'm a Christian because Jesus died the death I should have died. And he lived the life I should have lived. He gave me new birth, his spirit blew on me, and that's how I know. You see, one answer is about what God does, the other is about what you've done. No, a man cannot enter the womb a second time. All of our good deeds, that's what you're trying to do. Enter the womb a second time. You can't do it. But God, through his spirit, can make us alive. He can make you truly alive. We are born by grace into a life of redemption and meaning. But has this happened to us? Has it happened to you? Are things coming to life inside you that were dead before? Not because you're nicer, but because you're new. Do we trust God with our spiritual status or do we try to earn his favor? Or do we build our lives on the favor of other people? Does the Bible, the truth of God, when we read it, when we hear it preached, does it come alive? Or is it just information? Is it just good advice on how to live your life better? Do we only repent of the things we do wrong, but not of the things we do right for the wrong reasons? Christianity is not... is not about making good people. Christianity is not about making good people. It is about making new people. And everyone needs to hear this, but especially the religious among us. Are we trying to grow up before we've been born again? There's a final lesson here in our story about this religious approach to Jesus, and it's really just a logical conclusion of the other two, but in some ways it's the most important, it's the most perilous. Jesus frames, you'll notice, this whole conversation around seeing and entering God's kingdom. He says, unless you're born again, you cannot see. Unless you are born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this was a very familiar concept 
uh, in the first century to Nicodemus, to Jews in general. It's this, the image of God as king, as lord of the hosts, of the armies, of his royalty. It's all over the Old Testament. It's everywhere. God is king. So entering his kingdom meant salvation after death. It, was just, it meant being on God's side at the end of history on Judgment Day. It meant resurrection to new life with him. It meant entrance into heaven. It meant all these things. This is what Nicodemus would have heard when Jesus mentions the kingdom of God. And no doubt Nicodemus had taught people that the way to know God was to obey his commands and to devote themselves fully to him and to submit to his will. All things that we would agree with. But now Jesus tells him that none of those things will get anyone into the kingdom. That's, that's how you live in the kingdom, but that's not how you enter the kingdom. Jesus is saying no one studied their way into the kingdom. No one prayed their way into the kingdom. No one lived morally enough to enter the kingdom. God must provide an entrance. He must provide a way. And everyone, no matter who you are, must follow his way or you cannot enter. That's what Jesus is teaching. And he illustrates the point this way. He says, And Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is a kind of a cryptic reference to a story in Numbers 21 in the Old Testament. This is a story about the Hebrews, God's people. He's rescued them from Egypt, and they're wandering around in the wilderness. It's kind of a long story. And they begin to complain about God. They're encamped, and they begin to complain about God. And they're frustrated with him. They're tired. They're hungry. They've been eating the same food that he provides for them day in and day out, and they're sick. They call it worthless food. They say, this is worthless. We're sick of it. I don't care if it's a miracle that it showed up. I'm tired of eating it, right? And they have this, God, you owe me better than this. Does that sound familiar? God, you owe me better. So God sends snakes into the camp, and they have a venomous bite, and some of God's people even died from this bite. And not surprisingly, people, they, they freak out. They instantly say, we're sorry. <laughs> we're sorry for what we said. They repent, and, and, but God doesn't get rid of the snakes. He could have, but he doesn't. Instead, he, he says, build a bronze statue of a snake and put it on a pole in the middle of your camp. And then God says to them, everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, that is the statue, he shall live. And that's the story. So they'd look at the serpent, they would live, they'd be cured. Now, notice this about the story that Jesus referenced here. Everyone was equally infected in the camp. Everyone. Man, woman, young, old, moral, immoral, everyone is infected. Everyone is dying. No one is safe. No one. And everyone had one salvation, the bronze serpent. You see, it was, the, it was the great equalizer, right? The serpents were a great equalizer. It didn't matter if you were good, bad, or ugly. You needed God's miraculous help, and if you didn't look at it, you died, period. There was no other way. Some of you right now, here's the point. Some of you right now, you think that you're safe because you're in God's camp. But you're not. You sound like a believer, you look like a believer, your family are all believers, but you aren't one. I don't say this to be harsh, but we have to think, we have to consider this. And this is the final danger of of the religious approach, is religious people think they believe, but they don't. They think they believe, but they don't. 
Jesus is saying it's not enough to be in God's camp. It's not enough to be around God and his church and to fit in with his people and to read his book. You've got to look at the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. And you must say with the writer of the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, you must look and see him there. No one can do it for you. And nothing else will help you. I think what is, for me, what is most sobering about this story of Nicodemus is that there, there is a way to study the Bible. There is a way to study God as Nicodemus has done his entire life. There is a way to be a person of great moral integrity and real spiritual knowledge. There is a way to study Jesus and not recognize him when he's sitting right in front of you. Nicodemus has no idea who this guy is. He studied him his whole life, and he didn't know him. There's a way to think you have believed, but you've not. And we live in a culture that is saturated in many ways with the church, the Bible, people who attend church. But Dallas Willard said something we all need to hear. He said, the greatest mission field in America is the church. Because Dallas knew what John 3 was saying, the most subtle obstacle, the most subtle way to avoid Jesus and faith in him is religion. And many people in this room were trying to approach Jesus the way Nicodemus did. You have not yet heard Jesus say to you, I can't do anything with you like this. You must be born again. You've not come empty-handed. You are not looking at the cross. You are still looking at your own efforts. You haven't come to the Son of Man lifted up with nothing naked, helpless, and foul. And if the greatest obstacle to Jesus is religion, then the religious most need the gospel. But here's the good news, and we cannot miss this. In John chapter 3, the most famous verse in the Bible is, is right after this story. For God so loved the world, verse 16, he gave his only son. For God so loved the world. And we usually, when we hear that verse or when we see it at the Super Bowl or whatever, we, right, the, the image that comes to mind is that, well, God so loved the people who were messed up. God so loved the, peop- the prostitute, the drug dealer, the gang member that he entered our world. But this isn't spoken in the context of the immoral down and out people. There are other stories about those people, but not this one. This is a story about a religious teacher named Nicodemus. So reread it. For God so loved the religious. He so loved the self-sufficient, the successful, the Bible scholar, the obedient. For God so loved them, he gave his son because he knew that they too needed eternal life in them. And he knew it would take a miracle to save them from themselves, and yet that's just what he does. That's what he does. He does it to Nicodemus. We know the end of the story of Nicodemus. He, he, Nicodemus hears Jesus say that he has to be lifted up in chapter 3. If you jump ahead to John 19, we read that Nicodemus was one of the people who cared for Jesus' dead, lifeless, crucified body at the end of the story. He brought myrrh and aloes. He He took care of the body of Jesus. He bound it with linen clothes and he put him himself in the tomb. Nicodemus did. Now think about that. The Pharisees helped get Jesus killed. This is the end of Nicodemus' promising career as a Pharisee. It's over. 
He's, he's on the outside now. But Nicodemus didn't care because he counted that as worthless compared to the sacrifice he just saw. And I think that the pieces started fitting together for him. Nicodemus saw Jesus lifted up. It changed everything for him. And three days later, no doubt, when Jesus came out of that tomb that Nicodemus himself put him in, he finally understood what Jesus said to him that night that they first met. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have resurrection life. For God so loved the religious. His son was lifted up. And if any of us would see him there, if we would, if we would see in him the cure to our infection, the answer to our questions, the picture of what even good deeds cost God to fix, then a world, will, a world will open up to us and it's a world that we've only heard rumors of. A world of grace and forgiveness and peace. A world of eternal life with God. Because we've been born again. Let's pray. Father, we confess so often we approach you as people who need help, not people who need a new birth. Not people who are dead who need to be made alive. Not people who are trapped inside a womb and they can't even see the world for how it really is. God, by your spirit, open our eyes. Give us this new birth for those who haven't experienced it. And remind those who have of how beautiful a thing it truly is. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.